Father, thank you that that is true. You are a good, good father to us and that our primary identity is that we are loved by you. Help us now uh, to have ears to hear what your word says to us as we come across a teaching that uh, tonight is so, so unnatural for us, but is so, so necessary for our world and for our own sake. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, we are looking at, uh, tonight we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Luke that no doubt you're familiar with. You've probably heard before, uh, at least some of it anyway. And I want to dive just right into it. It says, verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. <clears throat> and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Well, uh, to talk about love at all can be a difficult topic, to say the least, especially because I think in our culture, uh, the definition of love is at the very least incomplete and maybe just flat out inaccurate. The dictionary definition of love, according to um, Webster's Dictionary and the Cambridge Dictionary, I believe it was, I looked them up in both, is, quote, an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. Now, we're all familiar with that, uh, that definition of love. That's sort of what we associate it with when we watch movies, romantic movies, or you know, romantic television shows or books. I mean, there's endless, endless sources that sort of reinforce this idea of love. And then we come to a passage like the one we have today, where Jesus tells us to do something that involves, frankly, no affection, no feelings of deep affection at all, but if anything, loving people that you have the exact opposite feeling for. 
deep antipathy to, deep uh, resentment to, deep fear of, and maybe for good reason. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, how it is, well, first of all, who it is that Jesus calls his followers to love. Second, how we're to do it. And third, why we do it. So who, how, why? Let's just dig right in. Who do we love? Well, of course, the religious establishment of Jesus, Jesus' day said you love those who are lovable. You love people if they've earned your love. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. We don't have any problem. And then Jesus comes in and says, no, in my kingdom it's going to be different. And the reason why he says is this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. We get the point, right? Jesus is saying for his followers what he wants them to be is so filled with love, so loving towards people, and notice they're all actions. They're not feelings, they're actions. Uh, so, so I should say, he wants his followers to act with such love towards people that the outside would see the absurdity of the love we have for even our enemies and sort of be reminded, oh, there's something very different about these people. Something very distinct. Well, everybody else is doing the natural thing. Hating your enemies, loving your tribe, sticking with their tribe, being defensive against all the other tribes. This group over here is reaching out their hand in love and care towards people that don't deserve it at all. Now, of course, in our time, probably, I mean, and it's not necessarily in our time, but probably the most famous example of somebody doing that, of loving one's enemies, probably is Dr. Martin Luther King, right? I mean, when we think about somebody who's, who kind of exemplifies this attitude, this was a big part of his whole philosophy of life and his whole way of going about his ministry and his protest. He chose to respond nonviolently when they would turn fire hoses on him and, and beat him and arrest him unjustly, which they did to many at the time. And when other people in the civil rights movement wanted so very badly to respond to the unjust actions that they were receiving with violence themselves, it was King who was often saying, alone sometimes saying, no, we have to continue down this path. People would ask him, like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep, I mean, enough's enough. You're not a doormat here. You know, that's the fear, right? That you don't be a doormat. And his response, I think, was very eloquent. He said, hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil, and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. When I read that quote this week, I incidentally just thought, this to, to act like this actually shows tremendous faith. Because behind this is a, is a belief that 
yes, God actually is going to work this out. Like if you don't have a God who's ultimately going to work this out for good, it's gonna be really hard to keep this thing going. So he has this fundamental belief backing this. It says, the arc of the universe is heading toward love and not hate. And I know this because the God I worship is the God who is love. So he's basing it on who God is and that's what makes him not respond to his enemies the way that they deserve to be responded to. Now I do need to make a note here that this passage is specifically speaking to individuals. So we make uh, a bad application of this passage if we say that this applies to governments or nations or states or whatnot. Uh, there the church has held uh, it has held more of a nuanced view, uh, typically espoused as the just war theory. Uh, but basically that there is, in certain cases, even though every time a nation would go to war or whatnot, is a result, every time it's a result of sin, no matter what, every, on both sides, that's what the church has said. On both sides, it's always a result. There's sin everywhere. But there may be times for the good of your neighbor that the society might have to go against their enemies or something like that. So, they, so they, there has been a distinction made, and I think it's important to identify that. The who Jesus is speaking to here is you individually dealing with other people in your life. He's saying you strive to love your enemies. You strive to love those who are unlovable. So then that leads to, well, how do you do it? Well, he, he really gives it up in the, I mean, it's a golden rule here. As you wish others, that others would do to you, do so to them. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Notice it's a positive action. Other traditions had a saying that was similar to this. Other religions had a saying that was similar to this. But what they would say is, as you wish that others would not do to you, do not do to them. Jesus says, no, you're going to be a force for positive action. You're going to actually do good on the behalf of the enemy, of the person that doesn't deserve it. So what are the, if we narrow it down, there's, I think, three big ideas that he says show us how to do it. First, he says sacrifice for them. Verse 27, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who, are, who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. In other words, it's, it's all sacrifice language. Sacrifice on behalf of the other. Sacri sacrifice, give, us, give yourself away on behalf of the other person. There's a great example of this not long ago on Twitter. Usually Twitter is a dumpster fire of humanity and everybody's trying to tear each other apart. But sometimes, sometimes, something good happens. I saw this the other day. Uh, there was a Patton Oswalt, a pretty well-known stand-up comedian, uh, I think had been tweeting out some, he's pretty anti-Trump, and so he'd been tweeting out some stuff against Trump and so of course some Trump's were, Trump supporters are responding this is so like it's just every day you know the anti-Trump people like, worst president ever and then the Trump people like he's the amazing you know and they, you're a fool and so this one Trump supporter Michael Beatty uh, responded to uh, Patton Oswalt's tweet 
I just realized why I was so happy you died in that movie, Blade Trinity. And, uh, and then he also referred to Patton Oswalt as a, quote, sawed-off little man. Sawed-off little man. Patton Oswalt's pretty, he's kind of short. Yeah. And then Oswalt gave it back initially. And threw something back, lobbed an uh, insult back at him. But then Oswalt noticed that Beatty had a Kickstarter on his Twitter account. I think it was like his pinned tweet. Uh, and it was a, Go, or a GoFundMe for health bills. And it turned out that, I mean, he was really, really in bad shape. He was pretty sick, this, this Trump supporter. And so Patton Oswalt, Patton Oswalt's next tweet was surprising. He said something to the effect of, oh man, you know what, I, I, I got into this argument with this dude and I threw back some insults too, but he's really sick. Why don't we help him? Why don't we send some money to his GoFundMe page? He's, so he just tweets this out to his four and a half million followers. That day, at the beginning of the day, Beatty's account, I think, had 600 bucks in it. And by the end of the day, had $21,000 in it. And Beatty, of course, was blown away. Because here he had, I mean, this actor didn't have to do this. This comedian didn't have to do this at all. And he says, I would have never have imagined this based on what I tweeted to him. If anything, I expected a scathing retort or just to be ignored. But that's not what happened. And he ended up writing a message back to Oswald saying, Patton, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You've caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. So yeah, there's this element that, you know, I mean, uh, it's not comfortable. It's not what we might want to do. It's not what the person deserves. But the sacrifice for him led to a change of heart, led to a softening in the argument. There's another way Jesus says for us to show love to our enemies, and that is to, well, to not be so judgmental of them. He goes on verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. All this is very easy for me to say. Good gracious, is it hard to do. Somebody was saying the other day, if you're standing next to a human, you're being judged. And you're doing the same, by the way. We're all making judgments all the time. I mean, this is just, who, this is what we do. We're all sort of prone to this. And, you know, the kind of judgment Jesus is talking about here is the judgment that, of course, looks at a person and is, I think it's more of a spiritual judgment. But, you know, so this person's not a Christian or this person's not good enough or whatever, you know, it's that kind of thing. But nevertheless, um, the church has been pretty terrible at this as a whole. I mean, it, it's just the fact. You ask people outside of the doors of the church what they think of the church. And a lot of the time, and I know this because I've done this for years now, the word judgmental comes up or self-righteous. It doesn't help that the loudest Christians often in the culture on TV and on cable news happen to be very judgmental a lot of the time in their pronouncements. 
Too often the culture knows what the church is against, but not who we're for. Which should be, by the way, all the people. So just this last week at the church I serve over in Jersey, a friend was telling me that she was hesitant for years to set foot into the church, not because of that specific church at all, not because she knew anybody in that church, but she was just hesitant to go to church in general because she was so afraid of being judged by the members as she walked in. I mean, really, is there any environment, is there any environment you want to leave faster than an environment in which you feel people are constantly examining you to see if you measure up, to see if you're good enough? I mean, do you, does anybody want that? Does anybody really, I mean, unless they've deluded themselves into thinking they're crushing it all the time, those are the kinds of people that like that environment, like, oh, I am, I am gathering with all of the winners. But the average human being is utterly aware that they're not part of that group. Philip Yancey once told the story of a prostitute who came to a friend of his, a social worker in this absolutely wretched strait. She was homeless and sick and unable to find, uh, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And his friend described the scene, said that she was sobbing and through tears she told him that she had begun renting out her daughter to supply her drug addiction. And so the man just didn't know what to do. I mean, he didn't know what to say. He was an absolute shock. I mean, he had to report her. It's mandated. He has to report her. And yet he also wants to somehow help. And so he just out of desperation says, have you thought about maybe going to a church? And she got this look of utter surprise on her face and she said, church? Why on earth would I go there? I'm already feeling terrible enough about myself. Now, I, I don't bring up that story because I think that that's, uh, I don't think that that's happened here. Thank God for that. I love the embrace of the community here and how people are willing to just sort of bring everybody in who comes in and embrace them. But, oh man, we do have to admit it has happened. And, oh, how different it would be if we were this place compared to the rest of the world. I mean, the world is judging just as much, by the way. The world might be judging more than the church is now. I mean, the world's actually kind of stolen that gig from the religious folks now because now, now they're judging, and, I mean, everybody's judging. Man, wouldn't it be great if we were just like, no, we don't, like, listen, it's whatever you're doing, we're not going to tell you it's fine or good, but we're, we are really, truly, like, going to embrace you. Like, it doesn't, even if we don't affirm everything that you do in your life, we're going to call sin, sin. We do it here every week. But we are going to do it like hugging you and embracing you. Like, we really mean it. Like, there's something very, very unique about that. To be able to love like that. And then Jesus, in line with that, mentions a third thing to do, to show love to our enemies, and that is to forgive Forgive your enemies. 
The contrast is so stark. Simon Wiesenthal tells a story after surviving concentration camps of just happening to be in a hospital where a nurse called out and said, Would you, are, excuse me, are you Jew? Are you Jewish? And he said, yes, I am. And she said, I need you to come with me. And so she came, she, she took him back to a room and there was an SS officer there. And the SS officer was about to die and he was clearly sick and in much pain. But he wanted to confess his crimes to someone before he died. And so Wiesenthal tells the story of this man holding down his arm and confessing his crimes to him and confessing all that he had done wrong and then asking him for forgiveness, begging him for forgiveness. And Wiesenthal tries to leave and he can't and he can't and he can't. And finally, the man says again, will you forgive me? And Wiesenthal stood up and walked out of the room. No declaration of forgiveness. I don't blame him. I totally, I mean, it's, I, I can't even say I totally get it. I just am like, this is a man who lost family to the SS. I mean, this is, I, I, I so resonate with like, no, you are not going to get the satisfaction. You're not going to get it from me. It's not fair. It's not just, it's not right. I'm not extending forgiveness to you. And every part of my being goes, yes, that makes sense. Yes. And yet, goodness, I mean, when you see it, when you see forgiveness extended to someone who does not deserve it, there may be no clear sign of the kingdom of God coming in our midst. I think about the members of the church that had so many brothers and sisters killed in South Carolina who upon first seeing the killer, even though he was entirely unrepentant and had no shame over what he had done at all, was looking at them defiantly, one after the other, declared forgiveness to him. I remember hearing that I was on the Staten Island Ferry and I was watching it on my phone. It was, I think it was live, or maybe I was seeing it taped, I'm not sure, but I had seen the whole thing, just raw footage. And I'm sitting there, a blubbering mess on the Staten Island Ferry, weeping because it's so evident the kingdom of God is here. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it looks like. This, this, oh, this nearly magical thing happening before my eyes of loving someone who is so disastrously evil the ability to do such a thing. A while back, seeing a clip of the trial of the Green River Killer, a man who murdered 48 women. And at his sentencing, family member after family member after family member came up and understandably read him the riot act. Understandably wished that he would go straight to hell that's what he deserved. I mean, it is what he deserved. And throughout all of these proclamations, the Green River Killer just sat stone-faced looking forward. No reaction. Nothing. And then this rather large man 
Robert Rule, with a long white beard, gets up in the courtroom. He was the father of a girl that had been killed. Looks at this monstrous killer and says, there's a lot of people in this courtroom right now that hate you, but I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult for me to do what I believe my God tells me to do, and that is to forgive. And so I want you to know you are forgiven, sir. And for the first time, the Green River Killer cracked. He bent over and sobbed. This is, this is scandalous. This kind of love is scandalous and it's uncomfortable. It leaves us with questions. It leaves us with fears of being taken advantage of. Being vulnerable like that, knowing someone can kick us when we open up. And so that leads me to the final question, and that is, why do it at all? I mean, yes, okay, the Lord says so, but why? Why? His answer? Because we know, even though we haven't loved the way he calls us to in this passage, I mean, shoot, we haven't even loved the people that we love all the time. Because we know that we have received such love from God ourselves. Or the way Jesus says it here is, you know, when you act like this, you know who you look like. You look like your father. You will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. You look like a chip off the old block when you act that way. How kind is he? How merciful is God? To get to the answer to that, we need to remember two things. One, how much we've been saved from ourselves. And two, what God is willing to do about it. Right now in the podcast I co-host called 30 Minutes in the New Testament, we're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. It's definitely been like the most enjoyable time recording for me because that book is just like, mm, num, num, num. You know, it's just so, so good. And the other day we went through Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. And I never get tired of saying these words. I never get tired of it because just listen. I mean, I don't have to say any more words after this. It's so good. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Enemies of God. 
but God, being hyper-abundantly rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So let me wrap it up. I'm not saying, and I don't think Jesus is saying, that you're somehow going to be magic, you're going to, you're magically going to have feelings of great affection for people that have really done you wrong. I don't think that that will happen first. I do think what will happen is as you act in love toward them, you just might begin to have affection for them. I do think that that's the way this works. And when we're formed by this reality that God pursues us even though we're naturally his enemies, then it just might empower us to love people the same way around us on any given day. To live supernatural, spirit-empowered lives to do what seems impossible. Because, as 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. We are recipients of a great, scandalous love. And we want our neighbors to be able to say the same when they come across us. That they have been recipients of a scandalous love. That they have not gotten what's deserved. That we have gone out of our way to serve them. Oh, Lord, how we have failed in this. You know, as I prepared this message, and even as I preach it now, I'm just convicted to the core of how, how much I have not loved people that are even just difficult to love. Not even enemies, just difficult. And so, Father, we plead your grace and mercy again. Pour it over us again and make us the kinds of people that reflect your light to the world around us we ask in Jesus name